Jackie Shelton Green is the current North Carolina Poet Laureate. She is the first African American and the third woman honored with this post, and she has received a long list of international and national awards and honors for her work. She teaches documentary poetry at Duke University. Jackie is the author of eight collections of poetry, and her poetry has been published in over 80 national and international anthologies, as well as featured in Essence, Ms. Magazine, and others. Jackie is also the founder of Sister Write, which provides writing retreats and excursions for women writers. This podcast was recorded during coronavirus, and so it was recorded outside, socially distanced. So we'll be competing with cicadas and road noise. This is Sharon Saltzgiver. And welcome back to The Thing About Aging. Jackie, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I am so honored to have you on the show. What are some early experiences that shaped who you are and your work? I've had models of what it means to speak truth. Even if it means you're standing by yourself. Even if it means... I got kicked out of public schools in Orange County, North Carolina, during desegregation because... Orange County desegregated schools very haphazardly. They sent home a mimeographed piece of paper, a strip of paper, lines. I would like for my child to attend an integrated school. Check here. Line. I would not like for my child to attend an integrated school. What year is this, roughly? 68. Wow. Of course, my parents checked. I'd like for my child to go. That's how they desegregated. Wow. The next year, they consolidated. They closed the black high school. Everybody went to the white high school, and it was a hot mess. Mm. Um, A group of us organized a walkout because we had presented a list of demands that we wanted black representation on on the um, student council. We wanted black representation in all of the clubs. We didn't have any. Uh, Mm. It was a really bad scene. Long story short, about 700 of us were kicked out. Your parents had to come back to the school with you and sign an affidavit that your child would never participate in any any, uh, protest or Civil disobedience. So, don't we live in the United right. States? Whole family: my parents, my aunts, my uncles, and my grandmother who was alive. We all went to the school board with our return. And my parents said, "We're coming to inform you that we are taking our daughter to school today. We're not signing the affidavit. If you don't allow her in, we will sue everything." that doesn't move. Well, I went back when I was branded. All the black parents had told their kids, stay away from her, she's a troublemaker. I didn't have any white friends. White teachers, there were some that were very racist. I mean, outwardly blatantly racist. And the black teachers were as they respected me. They were afraid for their jobs. Right. So I went from a straight-A student. If I raised my hand, I got sent to the office. I mean, they had it out for me. Sadly, the next section was buried under some very loud and vocal cicadas and traffic noise. 
But what Jackie shared was that she became so depressed and frustrated that she stopped going to school. And a social worker came to the house and recognized both Jackie's intelligence and her spirit and got her a scholarship to go to a prep school up north, which she did, and then continued on to college and cultivated the accomplished, strong, generous, and talented woman that she is today. I'm interested in, as you have aged, how has your relationship with your creative muse changed? Has it changed? I think when I was younger, I was taught, guided by other writers, teachers. I was taught that you couldn't invite her. She came when she wanted. You had to drop everything to be accountable to the muse. Okay. And I and I bought into that my early life, raising children, abandoning myself to the muse when she showed up. Mm-hmm. And as I've gotten older, I'm like, girlfriend, I ain't got time. <laughs> right. Like, we need to write today. So I have attempted to create the physicality and the the spirituals, the sacred spaces, the safe spaces where the muse might show up when I invite her to come. So I wanted to change that whole paradigm. Because I used to tell people, she's a jealous mistress. She wants you when she wants you when she wants you. Mm -hmm. And if you're not available, she's like, okay, well, uh, let me move on. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But as a working class artist, as a woman who had survived two really bad divorces, Mm -hmm. was raising three children, Mm -hmm. I didn't have the luxury. When I met my husband, we were out to dinner one night, and he said, I want to ask you something. And I said, what? He said, if time and money were not factors, what would you do? And I said, I'd come home and write. I said, I come home and be the writer that I say that I am. I said, I write, but I want the life of the writer. Uh, I want okay. to be the writer. Now, were your children still home at this no, point? No, everybody's gone. So what he said to me, he said, sounds like you need a plan. So 2004, I had a reputation as a fundraising diva. I was coming home, no energy, didn't want to talk, didn't want to eat. I would say, you can't live like this. You can't go on not healthy. One day he just said, it's time for you to quit your job and come home be a writer. He said, you just have to step out on faith and do it. He said, you just have to have faith in yourself. He said, this is what you want. You've earned it. You've deserved it. And he said, we can do this. What a gift. I mean, he opened the space for you to come back to yourself. Exactly. So you started writing. So, and Breath of the Song came out that same year. When I quit, my publisher said, I want a manuscript by the end of the summer. I said, you're a kid. She said, but you have the work. She said, so we have to get you out into the world. So that grant sent me to Central America. I went to Europe. I went all over New York. It was just like opening a wellspring. I was traveling, promoting that book. Okay. So it was, a, it was just an opening to finally just kind of step into my ram and say, I am a writer. Mm-hmm. I never introduced myself as a writer until I left my job. Even though I had other books published. Yeah. Claimed I yourself. Claimed yeah. I had been writing, but right. I wasn't a writer. And there was a distinction. The distinction was to put my entire being into it, was, was, was to breathe into it. Uh, it's my yoga. What do you mean by that? 
on, you know, it's my stretch, it's, it's breath. It's making space for the next breath. That's what writing does for me, it always has. Writing clears, clears landscapes for me. Mm. Um, I, I still write. I don't compose on the computer. I have, oh, you write longhand, Jimmy? I have tons on of paper. Tons of journals. I have tons. I love just legal pads. Mm-hmm. And I, I write. And when I go to the computer, it's for, it's where they live. But it's where the work happens. It's mm-hmm. where all the editing, revision happens. Um, and as I'm putting that poem, you know, typing it into the computer, I'm like, wow, I wrote this? I've had that experience, oh too. God. Yeah. The poem sort of has a life of its own. I believe in, in making art where other people can find themselves over and over again. That if we share our stories, if we tell our stories to each other, then the fact that you grew up in New England, the fact that I grew up in the South, but if we tell our stories, we will find our commonalities, we will find the things that tie us, that bind us inside of, of story. You know, we tell the stories that, uh, that we can tell because they're the stories that we cannot tell. So we must tell the ones that we can. That is what I love for is to see my art translated into dance, translated onto stage, translated into sculpture. When somebody else can see the breath and pick it up mm. or, or create other containers for it so it can go further out into the world differently. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm very willing to give it away. So much of aging, I think a lot of societies problem with aging has to do with death and I'm curious how your relationship with death has changed after the death of your daughter after being told that you were going to die from you didn't know it was Lyme's disease at the time and then just as we age and get closer to death how has your relationship changed your feeling about it um I am learning how to make space for it because it is a part of the living process. Mm-hmm. What Imani taught all of us was grace. It was the power of grace uh, and surrender. My illness taught me what it means to surrender. When you accept that in the scope of the larger picture, I'm so infinite, I'm so nothing. Mm-hmm. And that sense of nothingness is so powerful. Every facet of you is totally awake to experience this. To witness my child die, mm-hmm. I mean to be there, to witness her last breath, was powerful. But Imani's worryment was about us. She wasn't worried about herself. Mm-hmm. The second day she said to me, Mom, I am terrified. And I said, Imani, I am too. I said, but I need you to do something for me. So remember when we were little and we would get scared and we would like dig and go to our, our secret places? Because remember you were in, I would say, okay, you want to dig as fast as you can like a little rabbit and go down way, way, way deep, 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 deep and close the door. I said to take everything that brings you joy with you and sit there and you can dance, you can sing, you can read, but just be in your space. I said, nobody can get in. It's your space. You can come out whenever you want. I said, so I want you to go there. I said, I want you to stay there. And I said, everything up here, I got it. 
Mm. That's what I got this. Mm. So you don't have to deal with the doctors. I said, I need you to do it. Beautiful. And she looked at me and she said, Mommy, I'm digging as fast as I can. And she went to that space. And as she received visitors, she was happy. She was her quirky, funny self. Imani lived up until she died. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, so they, she's chill now. She'd wake up, look at the clock, look at me, and go, and go back to sleep. This went on all night. And when she couldn't blow the kiss, she'd just smile. It was clear she was transitioning. At about five o'clock in the morning, my husband said, the angels are here. He said, they're here. And she was in between worlds. She was just talking gibberish. And I said, are you in any pain? And she went, she smiled and shook her head. No. At about 7.30 that morning, we heard her say, just a little bit longer, okay? Okay? It was clear as a bell. Just a little bit longer. Just a little bit longer, please. Okay, I know, I know. Like she was talking, talking to, to somebody else. And she said, just, just give me a minute. And she was smiling to whoever she's talking to. Mm -hmm. We heard her say that. Mm -hmm. We went back to sleep. At 7.30 on the dot, my husband was over here, I'm over here, I'm right by her bed. We were asleep. We both jump up. It's like somebody tapped us on the shoulder. Probably her last breath. The next day, we're preparing her, her body for burial. A group of immigrant women elders. And one of my girlfriends who was there, she said, why'd you put makeup on Imani? I said, I didn't put any makeup on Imani. She said, look at her cheeks. Her cheeks were like apricot. She was glowing. And she had this smile. The more we touched her body, I swear to you, the smile got bigger. As we were rubbing, massaging her skin, her smile was getting bigger and bigger. And at any moment, I thought she was just going to go, fool you that time, Ma. I mean, it was that wow. kind of wow. energy. Mm -hmm. Like when she was a little girl and she would pretend to be asleep. You know, we'd be tickling her and talking. Right. She'd be tickling. Right. And then she'd open her eyes. You know, I, I was waiting for her to just pop up and laugh. So my relationship to death changed. The fear of it. Now I think in terms of preparation. What life-giving, sustaining anything can I leave for our granddaughter, our great-grandchildren? Mm -hmm. So for me, legacy wills, not the things we leave behind, not who's going to get my books, who's going to get my jewelry, but who's going to do my work? Mm -hmm. Is that your responsibility, work? though, to decide that? Or? No, it's not. But, it's, it, but I think in terms of a legacy I'd like, that's what I'd like for people to think about when we all leaving like service and work is going. Mm -hmm. Who will pick up that energy? Yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm excited about the emerging young voices, young writers that are coming. They're going to continue the work. Mm -hmm. Writers who believe in the power of writing, writers who believe in the power of language. You know, women writers who are finding their voices and and holding on to them and speaking power into their troops. Mm -hmm. That's the legacy that, that I think about when I, when I think about what, it, what croneship means. Mm -hmm. I'm enjoying being the elder. I had good elders. I have good elders. I, but when I think about a lot of the things that my grandmother did in life, I picked them up. A lot of the things my aunt did in life, I picked them up. 
um, how they showed up in family, mm-hmm. you know, traditions, carrying on the traditions, making sure the traditions don't disappear and the person disappears. Uh, their Imani had little traditions that we carry on in her name. Mm-hmm. This idea, and I don't know if it's unique to the black community, but I was looking at your poetry and the maternal lineage is strong throughout, mm-hmm. which is not to say that all your poems are about that. It's mm-hmm. woven in to whatever the subject matter is that you're dealing with. I counted in the collection Breath of Song, grandmother is mentioned 32 times. I'd never read the word grandmother in a poem before. 32 times, and I just found that so rich and beautiful. And Can you speak a little bit to what grandmother is in the black community, what it means, and... Yeah, well, my grandmother, and all of the grandmothers, because they all were my grandmothers. My grandmother was endearing and very, very special to me, and I feel like she still instructs me and guides me and directs me a lot. Mm. But all of those women were so instructive. Uh, Women who could make a whole lot out of nothing, could make a life out of very little. And... You know, growing up in an African-American Southern community rule where the black and white communities were pretty seamless, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and you saw that, especially at the death of a black elder. I remember as a child going to funerals for old black people, and I'm like, Mom, who are those white men up there trying to get in the casket with her? And she was like, sure, I'll tell you later. And, you know, the story would be, oh, honey... She raised those boys. They didn't have a mama. That woman didn't take care of those. Um, she raised those boys. They knew who mama was. Mm-hmm. They knew who cooked for them, cleaned for them. Even as grown men, they would still come to her for advice. They'd come to her to talk about their marriage. Mm. You know, that presence, that place. Um, so I always saw that righteous place of mother mm-hmm. and our family and all the black families that surrounded me and in white families mm-hmm. I mean it's not a, a black thing and many many southern white families many northern white families mm-hmm. um, but I always wanted to bear homage to it and especially to the fact that Black women historically have been mules. They've carried everybody's burden. Their own, their children's, their husbands, Mm -hmm. white women's. You know, there's so many, there's so many stories. When, when, you know, like, when that movie, The Help, came out, I was so annoyed with that movie because it did not show the really rich relationships that many black and white women had. When I've interviewed older women who, my mom was a domestic worker for a long time, the stories they have, the relationships with many of those women, they were sisters. There were secrets, they couldn't tell their white girlfriends. They didn't want their white neighbor who was their best friend to know that the husband was sleeping around or that they were in money trouble Mm -hmm. or their son had done something bad. So it was that black woman who was holding. Mm -hmm. She was a container for everybody's pain. And she had very little 
time for herself. Mm. I wanted to write her. I wanted to write her rich. I wanted to write her alive and vibrant. I wanted to write her uh, as an archetype of the strength that has fed, nurtured, guided me, you know, and is guiding my daughters. Mm -hmm. And I want to be that grandmother. You know, I live to be that grandmother who sees you, who can hear you, who understands you're different, makes space for the different grandchild. Am I hearing that the role of grandmother may be changing a little bit? That you were saying that they held the space, but they also neglected self. And it seems like other things that you said, you very much have boundaries around self and protect self. And Yeah, I, I feel like that, you know, there's a t-shirt, I keep saying, seeing it, and the t-shirt is, I am my ancestor's wildest dream. Ooh, and yeah, I, I've seen a lot of young African-American kids wearing them, and I'm like, I'm going to get me one of them. But I love that line because mm-hmm. I feel it's true. I am my my ancestors' wildest dreams. Oh, yeah. And with that comes responsibility. They made sacrifices so we would not be them. We create a different way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. And not just I'm not just talking about money, but respectability. Mm-hmm. You know, things that I say, I would be dead if I'd said them in the 1800s. Even in the 20s or 30s. Maybe the 50s and 60s. You know? Yeah. Um, But to be that voice. To say what they couldn't say. Mm -hmm. I remember a group of women I was, a group of elder women I was hanging out with, and one of them said, I'm grown enough to say what I want to say. And I think about that a lot. You know, when people want to censor your voice. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm grown enough. I'm grown enough. I'm not in my 20s. I'm not in my 30s. I'm not trying to be, get tenured at anybody's university. I'm not trying to get a corporate job. Done. I'm living for me. Mm-hmm. Mm. And living well for me on my terms. Outside of all of the constructs that define what wealth should look like. Mm-hmm. My mom lives with us. So your mother still lives? <laughs> and she's 104? 103. And she's in perfect health. Wow. It's perfect as a 103-year-old. She takes yeah. no medicine. Wow. I have a group of young women that I'm close to. I invited about 12 of them. I cooked all day. Dressed the dining room table. I mean, we had so much food. Gave them all goodie bags. Because I was listening to these young women on Facebook, all young African-American women, grieving one thing or another, talking about the racism they were enduring in graduate school, you know, young corporate women, they're talking about racism, classism, sexism, just everything. And I said, let me know when you guys can put a pin in it, and I just want to nurture you. I just, just, I just want to feed you one evening. I said, no agenda, just show up. Like you were talking about the grandmother before mm-hmm. Korea. Oh. Just show up. We laughed, we talked. Y'all gotta stop with all this political politeness. You just like gotta get it out of your system. So like right here, here, you can dump. Mm-hmm. Would I say mm-hmm. these things anywhere else? No. But yeah. you need that space. Yeah. You need that protected space yeah. where you can let it rip 
and you know you are safe. Because mm-hmm. not ripping is it grows. And that's what it creates festers, yeah. dis-ease yeah. and yeah. disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I said, we have to stop carrying all this stuff in our bodies. We are carrying so much angst, fear, anxiety, yeah. sadness. Mm-hmm. We carry it in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, we have to, we have to have a space. I said, you have to create a space, your purging space. I said, so I allow my women friends to, this is that space. Yeah, without judgment, just bring it on. So there's no judgment, you need to say, say what you need to say. Yeah. It is safe here. Mm -hmm. But what's said here stays here. And what I find is when I say something out loud, I very often then let it go. It doesn't even... Well, it was done. Yeah, it's done. It's done. Right now, I'm on everybody's radar. Everybody Mm -hmm. wants Jack and Shelby. Okay, so how is that for you? I mean, I'm how dis- do you keep space for yourself when everyone I'm is... very discerning. Okay, good. When I quit my job in 2004, I learned the power of no. I focused on the power of gratitude, and inside of gratitude is me not giving myself away. Mm-hmm. Me not being spiritually, emotionally bankrupt, which I had a... That was my pattern, that was my tendency mm-hmm. in relationships with men and women to give myself away to the extent that I didn't have anything for me. Mm-hmm. I don't do that anymore. And I have learned to tell people what my worth is. I remember an elderly woman told me way back in the 80s, she said, you become the $500 poet if you don't tell them different. She said, you have to tell people what you're worth, even if they can't afford you. And even if you're willing to take less, but you tell them what you're worth. Mm. And they can make a decision, they will find the money, or they'll give you the money because they do have it. Mm-hmm. But you have to tell them what you want. You really made the poet laureate position more than an honorarium. You've become an activist poet laureate, and that takes a lot of time and energy. Well, I am the poet laureate. Thank goodness there's not a, a prescription for it. Because mm-hmm. every laureate has chosen to characterize their laureateship in their own way. For me, I've always wanted the laureateship to be for the people. As I travel across the state of North Carolina, I'm in communities where people have never heard of the Poet Laureate. Those are the people I want to be in conversation. Mm. I'm here to incite you about literature, about storytelling, about the value of reading and writing, literacy and literature, to enhance the literary arts across the state, Mm -hmm. to tell people you have a book in you. Oh no, honey, I I just picked cotton. You have a book in you. Mm. To help people understand that their work lies inside of their story. Mm. They don't call themselves writers. Oh, honey, I've just been writing these little things ever since I was a girl. I'm 75 years old. I've been writing since I was five. I really wanted to expand, not just expand the literary arts for the the usual suspects, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but to really go beyond public-private schools, to go beyond colleges and universities. Like, like... I've always worked in prisons. I've always worked with homeless populations. I still, I'm still there. There'll be gatekeepers everywhere. But for me to open that gate wider, for voices like mine to come through, I don't want to be a font first only Negro there. Mm-hmm. You know, like my responsibility, if I'm inside the gate, I need to figure out how to take the hinges off that gate to make it accessible for me. And not just the accessibility, but the validation that you're worthy enough to be here. When I read on the governor's page on Instagram or Facebook one day, 
And it was right after I had been appointed, and there was all this nasty right wing. He only appointed her because she was black, you know. He's just kissing their asses. There's just like nasty stuff mm -hmm. that I had no idea that was out there. There's many people that are celebrating and happy that I'm the poor at large. There are that many people or more who are not. Because people kind of decide, they will decide when you get to it. And when I say that, I mean people in the literary community. Okay. Not just people at large, yeah, but just folk. And it's okay. My job for myself, my role, is to make sure that when I'm standing in front of young girls, I don't care what color they are, that they don't see me as some exceptional, magical, extraordinary being. I say to them, I grew up like you. I ate the same beans and rice you ate. And yeah, you can do this. It's called mm -hmm. hard work. Mm -hmm. If you're willing to put in the hard work, if you're willing to grow some tough skin, mm -hmm. you can do this. If you're willing to not allow other people to define you, if you don't buy into the narratives that people make up about you, and if you have the courage to tell people that is not who I am. Jackie, in your poetry, you speak very forthrightly about the physicality and romantic relationships. As you've aged, has that changed your views about sexuality and sensuality? When I was young, I used to think, people still have sex like after 50 or 60 yeah, 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 yeah. or 70. But I didn't feel like I had the safety nets inside of the other relationships where I could just like totally just, just, just open, just be. And I think sensuality, sexuality, eroticism, um, are very spiritual and very sacred. Mm. It is the sacredness, the sacredness of my relationship with my husband that I don't even have the boat anymore. I can swim as far out as I want to swim. And I'm not afraid of what's out there in those waters. Mm -hmm. You know, because he's with me. He's swimming with me. A cousin of mine who, beautiful story, a, a woman that my grandmother helped raise, and I never knew the story, but her mom had died in childbirth. So I only knew her, you know, as this kind of cousin who lived up north who would show up in the summer times. And long story short, she'd done really good for herself, bought a lot of real estate in Georgetown and Washington, D.C., very wealthy. She moved back to North Carolina. Moved back here and built a house in our little community. Well, unbeknownst to me, when she was a young girl, she, she was pale enough to pass for white. But she was mad in love with a cousin on my mama's daddy's side who was black, coal black. And the families kept said no. His family, she was too white. Her family, he was too black. And he married another woman, but she died. And he told her, he said, I let you get away one time and I'm not going to let you go to work again. They were in their 80s. He said, all those old people are dead and gone. They had a church wedding. When I say a wedding, she had bridesmaids. She had this like 20-figure cake. She had this ice sculpture of birds. It was fabulous. She walked down that aisle in her long white dress with a trail the whole bit. Little crap. She was serious. She had her wedding. And they were so madly in love. And I asked her one Sunday, I said, so y'all still? She said, why do you think we later Sunday morning to get to church? I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
right on. <laughs> I was so happy. I mean, when he looked at her, she just blushed. She just turned red. He would just look at her. They were so in love. And I said to myself, I want that. I want somebody that when I look at them, they just, they're, the whole world sees the light that I bring to you. And that they see that in me, what you give to me. And, and I have that with Lacto. I never had, I've had good relationships, but I never had that, this. Mm-hmm. I never had this. So it's magical for us. I mean, but sensuality to me is not always about sex. Sensuality is about food. It's mm-hmm. about cooking. We cook together. Mm-hmm. Food is very sensual. Mm-hmm. You know, um, how you put things together is very sensual. Mm-hmm. You know, how you make a home is sensual. So I embrace these things, you know, differently. What I think about all the time is that there will come a day, I'm sure, when the physical presence, the physical body, may not be a sexual body, but the spirit will always be erotic. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. And I've seen that with elders. Like, looking at... I was in Brazil one time, and in Brazil, like, dances, street dances happen, like, boom. Like, somebody turns on some music, and everybody is dancing on the street. And there was this couple, and they were old. They both were, like, all humped over on canes. The music came on. She stood up straight. He stood up straight. He di- they danced. They tangoed. And, and the whole crowd just stopped and let... They were the center... And I was watching them, and, and like young people were weeping because you could tell they weren't they weren't in this world anymore. Mm-hmm. They were like lost in each other's arms, and and I thought memory is a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. You could just tell they were remembering each other, and in times when they were young and danced. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way he looked at her, they were locked in each other. It was like the music had stopped; they were still dancing. And then they just stopped. He kissed her on the cheek. They picked up their little canes. So I just think, you know, it's the, it's the spirit that you... It's, everything is energy. Yes. It's all yeah. about energy. Absolutely. So for me, uh, I would like to think that uh, sensuality, uh, which is very important to me, has gotten stronger uh, and manifests itself in different ways. Mm-hmm that keep the sexuality going because mm-hmm. it's alive in other, in other things. I mean, there's, there's a poem I, I wrote for Abdul, and I read it in public, and he's like, would you like, like, could you like not read that poem in public? He said, because I don't, he says, I cannot keep it with straight face. I am so embarrassed. I'm just like sitting there blushing. So, yeah. I don't know if that answered you. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Well, I have walked up to women and said, what are you running from? Mm-hmm. I said, no, when are you going to stop running from your, from all of your gold? Mm-hmm. They're like, what are you talking about? I said, you know what I'm talking about. Running from your gold. Mm, I love that. Uh, Jackie, any other thoughts in conclusion? This virus has forced us to shed. Yes. To shed a lot of faces, a lot of masks, a lot of skins. Mm-hmm. To get down to your core. Yeah. Because when we have all that stuff, it's baggage. Yeah, and we can't go into this next 
ram. We can't go through that portal dragging all this crap. Mm -hmm. No, this is not. Jackie, thank you so much for your time and for all that you've shared here. It's absolutely rich and inspiring, and I can't thank you enough. And thanks to all of you for joining us again. I'm Sharon Saltzgiver, and this is The Thing About Aging.